Oh, if you guys don't sign up your kids, I don't know what it'll take for you guys to sign up your kids. But um, would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 uh, as we uh, launch and start a brand new series on Jesus' teachings called Parables, which is heaven down to earth, where Jesus talked about um, the kingdom of God because Jesus was a master storyteller, okay? Um, it's been estimated that one-third of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God have come in the form of storytelling or what we now know as parables. And parables just aren't stories to be heard, but they're riddles to be unlocked. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for parable, uh, mashal, in Psalm 49 and Psalm 78 and Proverbs chapter 1, verse 6, means it's a, a riddle. It's, it's a riddle to be heard and something to be unlocked. And the Greek word for parable is parabolo, meaning to throw alongside of. Throw alongside of. Because in Matthew 13, Jesus talks about this farmer who goes around and he throws seeds. He throws alongside of, and it depends on four kinds of soil, right? Whether it is... Uh, a good soil, whether it's along the path, whether it's rocky, or whether it has weeds. And so Jesus spoke on the kingdom of God, and the way that he taught was primarily, or a third of it, was through storytelling and parables. Um, you know, there's a the late broadcaster who's a legend, his name is Paul Harvey. Okay, if I were to ask you if you know who he is, that would reveal a lot about your age, so don't raise your hand. Um, Paul Harvey understood the importance of storytelling and the importance of art over argument. He wrote, Nobody could have persuaded a generation of Americans to produce a baby boom, yet Shirley Temple movies made every couple want to have one. Military enlistments were lagging in our Air Force units in 1980s until almost overnight a movie called Top Gun, right, had recruits standing in line and enlist. The power of art over argument. Harvey goes on to explain that several great books of the 19th century have a dramatic impact over our culture. For example, British sweatshops where children thrived until Charles Dickens wrote a book called Oliver Twist and Great Expectations, and it turned the public sentiment against children's sweatshops. You guys know that American slavery ended only after Harrier Beecher Stowe wrote a book called Uncle Tom's Cabin, which sold hundreds and thousands of copies, giving the, the struggling abolitionist movement the attention and support it needed. The people, because of hearing the stories about the, the evil of slavery from reading Uncle Tom's Cabin, they started getting, developing awareness. And, it, and uh, Abraham Lincoln, this is a true story, Abraham Lincoln approached Harriet Beecher Stowe and shook her hand and said, so you are the little woman who wrote the book that started this great war. The classic black beauty led to statutes requiring more humane treatments of draft horses and another instance in which animal activists struggled to make people relate to animals. You see, once upon a time, a cartoonist named Walt Disney created an animal character 
called Bambi. And in one year after Bambi was released, the deer hunting industry nosedived from 5.7 million to 1 million. The power of art over argument, the power of telling a story. It is no wonder that New York and Hollywood have such an enormous impact in our generation. And it's much more easier to hold the attention of our generation and our culture to start off with once upon a time instead of opening our Bible. The power of telling a story. And this is what we're going to study for this next six weeks. And we're going to connect the stories of Jesus coming to heaven, coming down here to earth, and how Jesus' stories relate to ours. So for the next six weeks, we will have testimonies from within this church talking about forgiveness, talking about multiplying what we have, talking about prayer, and how the stories of Jesus relate to ours. Does that sound good? All right, so let's all stand together. Matthew chapter 13, so we could read. If you're able to stand, please do so in reverence and honor to God's word. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. I could read, you could follow along with your eyes. This is from the ESV version. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and then he covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and he sold all that he had and he bought that one pearl. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we need you so much. Not only in you do we live and move and come into being, But Lord, not unless your Holy Spirit illuminates our minds, not unless your Holy Spirit opens our eyes, then we in our natural state cannot welcome and receive the word of God as inspired. So Lord, would you send your spirit right now? Would you open our hearts, open our minds that we would receive, Lord, and partake all that you have for us this morning, that the very purpose that you brought us here in this Lord's Day would come into fruition. Lord, I pray, God, that we would encounter you and come to terms, Lord, of your great love for each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So if you notice in Matthew chapter 13, Matthew, who writes primarily to a Jewish audience, he doesn't say the kingdom of God because you don't even say the name God. So instead, he uses what we call a metonymy, meaning one place standing uh, instead of another place. So for example, if you say, oh, the White House today declared that this law is going to pass, it doesn't mean that the White House makes the laws, but the government in the White House makes the laws. And so in Matthew 13, when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, he's saying the kingdom of God. In other words, the way that God operates, the way the economy of God and how God works and how God deals is like this. And 
the way that God works is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found. He covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. You see here that the man finds something that has value and worth. And because he found it valuable, he's going to sell what he has and buy that. All right? Now, here in Hawaii, thank goodness. Thank you, Jesus Almighty. Lord and Savior, because it is mango season, all right? And last week, our family received a box of mangoes. There's about 12 mangoes in there. And, you know, not to play favorites, but whoever gave us the mangoes are our favorite members at church, okay? <laughs> because, man, uh, we almost had a fight because I'm like, oh, there was like 13 mangoes. Now there's only seven. Who ate it? I'm like, I only had half a slice. And, you know, we're like pointing and accusing. And it was like, mangoes are so valuable. It's like gold over here, right? Like Johnny, my brother-in-law, we went on a run to uh, Mount Alua Bay. And so we're about to go on a run. We're, we're, first we walk, you know, to stretch because I'm going to turn 40 next month. And, um, and, and as we're walking, we came across a low-hanging mango tree, right? And they were just ripe and they were ready. And you know, it fell outside the property line. But the Bible says, do not steal. So it put me in a dilemma. I was like, oh gosh, what do I do? But I was like, oh Johnny, you can't take that. You can't take that, man. That's definitely a no-no. He goes, are you sure? He goes, yes, don't take it. I'm like, okay. But lo and behold, as we were walking, the heavens opened up and there was a mango on the floor that was ripe and was ready. But we had to go on our run. And I don't want to be that dude that's running with a mango on Kalaniane all the highways. I'm like, so it's valuable to me. It's worth something. So it's like, hey, bro, you see that little empty lot over there? Let's put plastic over it, cover it up with rocks, and we'll just come back. And sure enough, when we come back, we had the mangoes. <laughs> Why? Because something only has value in how people are willing to pay for it or treasure it. The next instance in same principle but different story in verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven, the way that God works, he is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and he bought it. You know, Forbes magazine wrote an article just about uh, a Filipino fisherman about 10 years ago. He made an amazing discovery in the sea in the coast of Palawan in the Philippines, he found a two-foot-long, 26, which is about 26-inch pearl inside of a giant clam. He took it home and he hid it as a good luck under his bed, keeping it as a good luck for over 10 years. Recently, his tiny home burned down, but the 75-pound pearl survived. This is the story, right? This is the pearl, 75 pounds. The second largest was also found in the Philippines. Woo, woo, a lot of hidden treasure in the Philippines, right? <laughs> this pearl is worth uh, $100 million. He discovered it. The other person who, who's from Canada got a family heirloom, 22-pound pearl. He called it a gigapearl, worth $60 million. Treasure willing to buy and sell all that he has. Now, the parables, you guys, it's supposed to have a shock factor. 
The parables of the Good Samaritan are supposed to shock you, and we're supposed to identify with the characters in the story. But I'll be honest, every time I've read this, my whole life as a Christian, I identified, I thought myself like I was the man, that I found God, and I'm like, you know what? In my joy, I'm going to give everything I have, my past, my mistakes, my failure. I'm going to sell everything I have so that I could follow God. And I, I thought of myself, I would be like that merchant. I'm looking for meaning in life and purpose, and I found God. I'm going to give everything that I have to follow God. But the problem is, is that this is not consistent in Scripture. Because in the Bible, it is God who seeks, not people, not man. In the Bible, it is God who searches. It is God who pursues, who relentlessly pursues after you and after me. So may I submit to you this morning that it is God who looks at you, who looks at me, before we came to know Christ, Romans 4 says that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our poverty, spiritual poverty, in the midst of where we are, Jesus saw us. He's like, I got to save him. I got to save her. I'm going to give, I'm going to bankrupt heaven. I'm going to give everything that I have in order to save and to redeem him or her. That God is the one who looks through and fro the earth, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, he's looking to and fro the earth and he sees you and he sees me and he's willing to give up everything that he has, give his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life so that he can save us. That God, I'll just say it right now, God finds value in you. That you are worth it to God. That he's, he gave everything for you. He gave of himself for you. And so how do we apply this truth in our life? Number one, would you write down, find your value in creation. Discover or find your worth, your value in who you are in creation. Now if you read your Bible, you'll know that context is everything the surrounding verses before and after that gives or delimits the meaning of what, how you interpret a, a biblical verse. So let's look at Matthew 13. Let's look at 10 verses before our text. Matthew 13, verse 34 through 35. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in what? Parables. He was throwing them aside. He's throwing quizzes to be handled. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, without talking story with them. Verse 35, So was fulfilled that was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. What are things that are hidden in creation of the world? The hidden thing is this, Genesis chapter 1, what happened in creation, why Jesus spoke in parables. Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us, notice the plural here, God the Father didn't say, let me, but along with God the Son, God the Holy Spirit says, let us make people, human beings, in our image, after our likeness, 
So God created in His own image, in the image of God, He created Him, male and female, He created them. God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very, very good. For up to that point, the first five days of creation, everything was, oh, it's tov, it's good, it's good. The trees, the mountains, the flowers, the oceans, the animals. But on the sixth day, God created people in His image according to His likeness, and He said, tov, tov, in Hebrew, very, very, very good. There's value in these people because I put my DNA, I put my thumbprint and my signature into each one. That in human beings, we can act out of free will, that we don't act out of instinct. In human beings, we have the ability to send people to the moon, to make romantic, uh, to make songs, right? To, to cure diseases. In human beings, made in the image of God, and God saw it, and He said, it was very good. And you notice here, when God created man, he created him on the sixth day, his first day of existence before man can do anything, before man can tend the garden, before man can serve God, all he had to do was rest. And from that place of rest, God had pleasure on his created beings. That people didn't have to do anything for God to be saying, oh, you're very good. That God, as soon as he created them, it's very very good. You know, uh, the most expensive signature in the world, can anybody guess? William Shakespeare. There's around record of only three signatures of William Shakespeare. Each one is worth $3 million. If I just were to get this connection card, which you all better fill up, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> if you get this connection card, it's, eh, it's worth whatever. If it had the signature of William Shakespeare, how much would it be? Three million dollars. Do you understand that when God created you, you're fearfully and wonderfully made, formed by your maker, ingrained with the likeness of God himself, He's put his signature into each and every single person, and he says, it's good. You find your value in what God has made you to be and not what people say that you are. And in this parable, God is willing to do whatever it takes. He's willing to sell all that he has in order to purchase you because he pursues you. He follows after you. He searches for you. And this is the God that we make. Now, about a thousand years after Jesus told these parables, a monk named Bernard of Clairvaux in France wrote something that brings insight into these parables. Now, Clairvaux, he was a monk and he uh, founded over 70 monasteries all over Europe and he wrote many books on love. And he observed that, man, there are about four stages in a person's relationship with God. See if you could find yourself in any of these stages. 
so that you and I can move forward to what God has. Number one is the first basic level is love of ourself for the sake of ourself. Meaning that we love ourselves because we're selfish. We're concerned only for ourselves. We're only aware of our own needs. You, you're born into this world as babies. You have no choice but to begin our lives in entire self-centered reality. But we don't have to stay in this level of selfishness. Number two, he says there's a level of, of love or stage of love where we love God for the sake of ourselves. Meaning we step into a relationship with God, but only on the basis of what God can do for me. Corbeau noted that this is as far as most people ever travel in their lives. You know what's a good indicator in you, if you're on stage two of this type of love, that you love God because you can only get something from Him? How does your prayer life look like? If your, prayer is mainly, if your prayer life mainly consists of asking God or to give us something, to protect us, to make something happen, to heal, and, and just to do things for our behalf, then we're probably at that second level. If this is where our love for God stops, we are, listen, we are in danger of hating God if He does not give us what we want when we want it. It's very selfish. We're using God, almost like a genie, we're using God as a means to ourselves, which is us, okay? Number three, love of God for the sake of God, meaning that this is when we begin to sense the value of who God is, that we see God as the gospel, that we begin to see that what makes heaven heaven it's not streets of gold or mansions with many rooms or a glorified body. What makes heaven heaven is God being there and we get to have a relationship with God. We begin to value and see who God is for who He is. And I thought, man, this, would be, this is the end of it. But according to Clairvaux, there's a fourth stage. And this is this, would you write down? Love of ourself for the sake of God. You know, when I first read this stuff, it rubbed me the wrong way. It seemed like very man-centered, like selfish, prideful, and arrogant. That it seemed backward, not forward. But having been in the ministry for a good portion of my life and as a pastor for over 15 years... I've learned that it's very rare to find a person who does not suffer from some level of blatant self-dislike or even self-hatred. You see, you're not loving yourself because you're special. You're not, we're not saying you love yourself because you're talented. If you're Filipino, talented, all right? You don't love yourself because you can do something or you're special. You love yourself because God loves you. You know, some people focus on physical traits, desiring to be taller or thinner, look a different way. Introverts wanting to be extroverts. Others wish, wishing they had other people's skills or abilities. 
If only I could speak as well as this person. Oh, if only I could sing or write music like her. Oh, if I could build a business and be entrepreneurial like that person. Oh, and we wish. And it's as if God made a mistake in making you and making me. Like God didn't know what he was doing. If you've struggled with negative feelings toward God, it is surprising to discover, to find out how God feels about you. When you enter into the sports stage, we have caught a vision of the value that God has placed in each one of us. And I can tell you guys, as a pastor, I cannot lie, like, man, I, d- I struggle. I struggle. Like, uh, we, before we went to California for our vacation, I went golfing with the guys. We had our golf ministry, and it's only the third time in my life I've gone golfing, so I forgot to wear a hat. So I was like sunburned, and I was dark. Uh, if you know anything about Filipino culture, being dark-skinned is a no-no. And I go to California, oh, John John, oh, you're so dark, man. What happened? Oh, you just hang out at the beach all day? And I felt so self-conscious, like, oh, my gosh. And then um, even uh, yesterday for Mother's Day, we got Renee a, a gazebo for Mother's Day. She's asked for like 14 years. So after 14 years, I finally got her one. And so we, we got this gazebo and then uh, it's been laying out in the garage unassembled for like three months. So I'm like, oh, I better build it. So I built it, but I was out in the sun and I got some sun in and I went to go inside to wash my hands. And then my mother-in-law, Annie, she's like, oh, you know how long it would take me to get my skin that golden tan? And I'm just like, oh man, I'm so dark, right? And, and Man, even hearing, you know, Naholo works in our podcast and he edits it and posts it up and hearing my own voice, I'm like, Naholo, turn that off in Jesus' name, right? Stop it. I don't want to hear my own voice. I hate it. Do you guys know scientifically because of the vibration in your ears to, from when you speak into your ear, you sound different to yourself than to everybody else? And I hear myself talk. I'm like, why does anybody even go to church? I sound so stupid, right? Like, uh, this sounds ridiculous. Like, God, if I could only have a deeper voice, if I could be more like this person or that person. And we all struggle with things. But this stage in your life where you begin to love yourself, the author and perfecter of your faith, if you begin to love God because He loved you as you are, this is the place where you find rest. This is where you, the place where you find your identity. This is the place where you can thrive, where your existence does not matter on what others say or what you have. You know, like, I look at my, you know, one of my children when they were first starting out school, you know, boys, they're like late learners, and girls, they just, uh, they're just set up straight and like to learn, and boys like to, you know, climb up trees and make mud pies, right? And so, the first week of kindergarten, or preschool, you know, my, my, my son had a hard time reading, and I was like, it's okay, let's go read, and he starts weeping. He's crying, oh, man, I, I, I I'm so stupid, Dad. All my kids, all the kids say I'm stupid. I'm like, son, if you could only step outside and see how much you mean to me and your mom, like, you're, we love you so much. You're going to let these five-year-olds who eat their own boogers, (laughs) 
you're going to let them dictate your worth and your value? Like, son, no, that's not who you are. You're so smart. You're so loved. You're so gifted. You're so talented. You know, God has a plan and a purpose for your life. In the same way, God looks at us when we shortchange ourselves, when we compare ourselves to others, when we don't find value and worth in who God is and what He's created us to be. We're letting other things outside dictate. So this is find your value in creation. Number two, we'll go ahead and close with this. Rejoice in the God of your salvation. You cannot read Matthew 13, 44 to 45 without noticing the sense of joy that the man, in his joy, he sold everything that he had to buy the hidden treasure, that the merchant, in his joy, sold what he had to buy that pearl. Let's look at Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 16. Zephaniah 3, verse 16, and this opening uh, preposition is very important. It says, on that day. What day? On the day that God saves and redeems His people. On the day when God sells everything He has to find us. On that day, it shall be said, or it will be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God, He's in your midst. He's a mighty one who will save and here it is, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The word rejoice over you literally means to dance or skip or leap or to spin around in joy. That God dances with shouts of joy over us when we come to know him. Charles Spurgeon says this, If God sings, shall not we sing? God did not sing when he made the world. No, he looked upon the world and said, it's good. The angels sang, the sons of God shouted for joy, the creation was very wonderful to them, but it was that, not that much to God, who could have made thousands of worlds by his mere will. Creation could not make him sing here it is when all was said and done the lord saw what became of it the salvation of his redeemed then he rejoiced after a divine manner do you see what zephaniah is saying what spurgeon is saying when god created us he's like okay it's good very very good but only in your salvation, only in his salvation of you and me did God come out like a mighty warrior doing like a haka, right? And did he dance and sing and rejoice and sing over us? Only in our salvation does God rejoice. Luke 15, we all know that, right? The parable. There's three stories in Luke 15. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the prodigal son, right? Or the prodigal father, I think is a better way to do it. Now, in these three stories, there's four common threads, okay? Number one, something valuable was lost. The sheep was valuable, it was lost. The coin was valuable, it was lost. 
the son was valuable and it was lost. Number two, because something valuable was lost, it warranted a great search. There was a search party. The good shepherd, he left the 99 to look for the one that was found. The woman went through her house, turned everything up to look for her hidden and valuable treasure. And the father ran and embraced his son. Do you guys know that's the only scriptural reference in the New Testament that describes God running to seek and search after us? That when the father saw his son while he was still a long way off, he ran and hugged and embraced him. There's a search for the valuable loss. Number three, common thread, is that there is a great party. Right? The shepherd gets his neighbors, they throw a party. The woman gets her neighbors, throws a party. The prodigal father gets the neighbors and they throw a party. Number four, there's a common thread. It's this, that there's a point of the story. It is better, it is better for uh, one person to get lost, I mean, to be saved than 99 who needs no repentance. And so Zephaniah simply says this, that God rejoices in his salvation over you. Yes, I saved him. Yes, there's an abundant life ahead of him. He's, I'm going to bestow on him my spirit, and he has a, I have a plan and a purpose, and God rejoices over our salvation. Psalm 51 verse 12 says, Restore unto me, O God, the joy of your salvation, not my salvation, or restore the joy that I'm saved. No, no, restore unto me the fact that you saved me, God. You see, there is a joy when we are saved. There's a joy to know that our sins are taken care of. There's a joy that springs up within us to know that our eternity is secure in God. And so with that, uh, I'm going to ask one of our uh, sisters just to share a testimony of how God has saved her and is restoring to her the joy of God's salvation. So would you guys welcome up Chanel Esteban? Aloha. Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Once again, my name is Chanel Esteban, and I've been attending New Hope Community Church for two years now, exactly as of today. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> By the grace and mercy of God, I've been saved and baptized, and I've been given the opportunity to serve in our children's ark ministry, working mainly with the preschoolers, infants, and toddlers. So I probably watch a lot of your children on the weekend. Um, this is a little difficult for me to share with you today. I haven't really spoken about this publicly other than to personal friends and close family members. Um, so I'm going to bring you back two years ago, just about four days before I attended my first service here. I decided to have a serious conversation with my boyfriend of five years um, about our future, about our lives ahead of us, and I informed him that I was through with playing house and living as though we were married without that actual commitment. It was important to me that before we had children that we were married. And it's a little old-fashioned, but it's just something I've always wanted for myself. 
And after five years, I decided to stand on that. And so after a long conversation, a lot of crying and hugging and wishing that things weren't going to be this way, I decided to break up with him. And this happens to everybody. It happens in life many times. But this time, as we hugged, we were saying goodbye. I said goodbye. He went to work, or before he went to work, we said, I love you, I miss you. And um, he asked if I was going to come home tonight. And I said, no, are you crazy? This is what I'm talking about. You need to take me seriously. I am not coming home tonight. I went about my day, went to work. He went to work. He messaged me. The next morning, I woke up. I went about my day. I went home to our place. And I knew that he should be at work. But as I got home, I went upstairs. I um, saw his car there went into our room and I saw him sleeping. He was sleeping the eternal sleep. He was lifeless in our bed and I didn't know how he had passed away. So for four months, I was tortured with the possibility of so many things, suicide, drugs. Maybe I broke his heart. Maybe he, maybe he died because I decided to leave him. And I thought that love could be that powerful. And so quickly, without warning, my life changed, my future, no marriage, no kids, uh, no growing old together. Um, I blame myself for all of it. Uh, four months later, like I said, I found out that he had a massive heart attack at 31 years old. And it's possible. You can be a personal trainer and eat well, eat healthy, but sometimes when it's that time, when God wants you home, he's going to take you home. And so the weekend following David's passing was when I intended my first service here. And my boyfriend David's father also attended this church. So I came with him to support him, to be near them, because it made me closer to him. I had to find any way that I could to, to be near those who loved him. And so when I came to church, it was a little selfish of me, but I came also in search of confirmation of everything that I've already known all my life, that heaven was real, that when we die, that's where we go. But I also wanted to know how I was going to get there. If, if when I die, will I see him on the other side? And that's all I saw. I, I didn't think to praise God. I didn't think to call upon him to take away my pain because... I thought that he couldn't do that because no matter the pain, no matter what had happened, no matter how great God was, my heart was broken. And so little did I know that Jesus was waiting for me to give him my pain and my heartache. And so I continued to come and I met the most beautiful people, people who could share with the same story as myself, maybe people who are going through different struggles and um, I found myself falling in love with worship and coming in here and listening to Renee sing. I would cry and cry and cry and cry. And for the first time in my life, I didn't feel the shame of crying because of Jesus. I would come in as a kid to church, you know, and I would see my mom raise her hands or people dancing and singing, and I didn't understand it. It made me really uncomfortable. But this time I understood it. But through all of that, I continued to struggle with my depression and anxiety, seeing a therapist, 
um, trying to talk to my family and friends, but uh, it was hard to talk to my dad especially because nine years before that, we had lost my brother and they didn't like the thought of death and they never had, they didn't take the opportunity to come to God with your issues and with your pain and your struggles. And so, um, actually I remember coming to church and praying that God would take my life, that it would just be done. And I think I would have been happy with that. I thought that that was exactly what I wanted because I knew I was in love with someone that was in heaven. So if God can take me there, that's where I wanted to go. But over time, Jesus began to fill my life with little things, um, love in different ways, not a personal relationship, but serving with the kids in Children's Ark. And they were amazing, they still are, and they hug me and they kiss me and they, they know who I am. And I've had the opportunity to coach volleyball at my high school and a lot of these things I turned away from, uh, going to the beach, spending time with family and friends, because again, I isolated myself. I didn't, I didn't think that they could understand the heartache that comes with losing your future and not seeing that I still could have a future. And so um, through all of this pain, I was actually, actually, I started, I started to see joy, like I was saying. And no matter my sadness, Jesus kept holding on to me. I would run away and think that, oh, no, 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 I'm okay. I can take care of this on my own. He would just keep bringing me in. And again, the worship music was what kept drawing me back in. Um, but there was a moment when I, after attending church, I realized that if I couldn't have David with me, that the only person that was worthy of my love and my heart was Jesus. And I knew, I knew that for now, you know, this is who I'm gonna give my heart to. And I struggled with the thought of sharing my testimony with all of you today because every time I've heard a testimony or what I imagine it to be, you're supposed to come out with a big bang, a big story, a big hoorah, I'm married, or I finally had my kids, or you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing that, but honestly, none of it happened. Just these little things that have brought my joy. And um, like you guys already heard about how precious a pearl is, um, I think of my life as a pearl, my story. Um, if any of you know how pearls are made, when a piece of sand or debris or food passes through and it gets, it makes its way inside of an oyster, the oyster starts to defend itself and covers it with its shell, covering it, covering it, covering until it makes a beautiful, round, shiny object that is basically perfect. And um, I think of Jesus as being my oyster, and I was that piece of sand, and I made my way to him, and he continued to cover me over time with layers and layers of love and joy and happiness. And I may not see my future. I may not see the outcome of what his plans are for me. I don't know what it is. Um, and my heart is still broken, but I know that I know that without Jesus, I could have not come this far. And his will will be done. And, and I'm so grateful and blessed to have this family here that drew me into a place that I never thought I could be. 
I could always have a relationship with God and tell him I loved him, but this time, this time it was real. And so thank you for letting me share with you today. Can we all stand together? All right, you just want to stay. And uh, it takes a lot of uh, boldness and courage to share her uh, testimony. And so I just wanted to um, let you guys know, you know, uh, it's not always a happy ending, but it is worth it because of Jesus. Um, God finds joy in you. God is not irritated at you. God is not annoyed by your prayer request. God is not angry. God takes pleasure in you. He made you according to his image. He's willing to give everything so that he could have a relationship with you and you have a relationship with him. You know, Hebrews 11 says, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It says, in his joy, he counted the cross. In his joy, he went to the cross for you and me. And that is the Father's heart for you. That's the Father's heart for me.